Before we begin, a brief thank you to all those keeping the wheels of society turning. To all you first responders, law enforcement, and medical personnel, let nothing of what I say at all diminish our thanks and praise you deserve each and every day, not just now, but in every storm, in every crisis, and throughout all the little moments of hurt and fear and injury that we all face each day. Thank you. Now to the rest of you, the quiet army, the hidden light through this period of uncertainty, thank you. To name just a few, all of you in the food industry, from those producing and processing to the truckers fighting sleepless hours, and all the retail workers and restaurant teams that are keeping our pantries and bellies full, thank you. All of you in vector control, including the wonderful lawn care workers that have kept our empty parks and yards trimmed and free of those pesky critters that would otherwise cause even more widespread disease, thank you. All of you utility workers, inspectors, and trash collectors, without you, the water would cease to flow clean and the lights would go dark as the streets filled with trash and disease and the toilets overflowed from all the ungodly things being flushed down the drain for some odd reason. Thank you. To the stay-at-home parents and the teachers on Zoom calls, you are all being newly appreciated by many that never realized all you do. Thank you. And the refinery workers, auto mechanics, road service crews, shipping companies, and airline workers. You are keeping the machine of commerce running, fueled and open. Thank you. To all I have mentioned, and so many more, you are the economy the politicians are jockeying to politicize. You are the system worth keeping and protecting. Thank you. Conspiracy Theoryology When this series began, the yet unnamed coronavirus outbreak was epidemic largely to mainland China and centralized near the presumed point of origin and epicenter, Wuhan. While moving swiftly, human-to-human -human transmission was still in question, and most symptoms still resembled that of a mild cold or flu. The rest of the world was largely dismissive, with passive observance, while those with political or financial interest in the vaccine industry simply used the event as encouragement to others to get your flu shot. By Part 2, the disease caused by the still poorly understood SARS virus mutation had a name, COVID-19, which brought to light a naming convention meant to address outbreak events in a politically charged climate. In just the few short weeks between episodes, so much had changed that we spent an entire episode updating everything known at the time. By this point, the reality that this virus was so unusual and behaving so differently gave rise to theories of origin and intent. With the reality that this disease was beginning to cross borders, predictions and warnings started to work through a U.S. population still largely ambivalent. We took to the time to explore public reaction and the concepts of decision-making in pandemic uncertainty. Eventually, we arrived at our core discussion the real ground zero of modern pandemic panic. And in episode three, we discussed the Spanish flu of 1918. Though hardly doing justice to all the world history contemporary at the time, we focused on the three waves of spread that occurred in the U.S. We ended our discussion with questions. Was the Spanish flu really the ruthless killer to which it has come to be known? If so, 
How did it get to be so lethal? And if not, what was the cause of so much death in those early years of the 1900s? This time, on Conspiracy Theoryology, we wrap up our discussion of the Spanish flu, exploring the medical knowledge of the time, what we now know to be true, and some other influences and conditions that may have attributed to the most lethal viral outbreak of the 20th century, and, in light of our recent events, how it really compares to the first truly global pandemic panic of the 21st century. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. Let's start with the punchline. The Spanish flu pandemic was certainly deadly, but it did not kill 50 million people. Not without the help of its friends, anyway. You know, famine, malnutrition, and World War I. Horrible roommates, all of them. Up until this year, the effort to hyperbolize severity of the Spanish flu has been extremely popular, because fear is a great motivator. And that motivation has been very profitable for the pharmaceutical industry for 40 years. The boogeyman of annual flu has led the charge into a vaccination mindset that makes a lot of money for the industry and gives a great deal of power to those that wield political influence. Unfortunately, that same exaggeration is now yielding its fruits and has caused the public to react in an irrational manner to the COVID-19 pandemic. And when I say public, I mean everyone, both sides of the opinion spectrum. So, you have probably noticed that there was a large gap between part three of this series and the episode. In truth, I did not know how to frame this discussion in light of current events. Up until March of 2020, research on the Spanish flu was academic and historical. There was very little reference to any modern context other than that oft-repeated phrase, it's not if, but when. A very convenient phrase to use to maintain fear and worry without having to actually provide any real information proving the statement. Now, though, I challenge you to go to your search engine of choice and find information on Spanish flu. The first page of results will undoubtedly be filled with recent articles comparing the Spanish flu to COVID-19. The two events have become entwined. I cannot present historical factors of Spanish flu without now providing context for viewing the current pandemic. Likewise, we can better understand the true behavior of the flu pandemic of 1918 given a current framework with which to compare. To not do either of those things would be as irresponsible as those that have made the point to draw extreme views through comparison of the two events. Now that said, let's first understand the death toll of the Spanish flu after we explore the many factors that influenced the mortality rate. We can wrap up this discussion talking COVID. Now, there were several factors that influenced and bolstered the severity of the pandemic. The first being the approach to calculate the mortality impact. That number has grown steadily since early estimates in the 1990s, 
from 20 million to 50 million in 2005 to upwards of 100 million, which is 5% of the global population at the time. But a reassessment in 2018 put a more realistic number at 15 to 17 million. This is a quote from the article I found in the Oxford Academic American Journal of Epidemiology, which was published in September of 2018. The title of the article, Reassessing the Global Mortality Burden of the 1918 Influenza Pandemic. Pretty straightforward article. Here's the quote. In the present study, the best estimate, including India, for global influenza pandemic deaths is 15 million. The reader should be aware that this estimate may be too high because of limited possibilities for corrections. If one assumes that, especially for India, the results are a clear overestimation, it is probably better to use the results excluding data from India. These problems should be studied in further detail, but it is crucial that information about other causes of death that led to higher mortality rate are included in the analysis, and time trends in mortality are also taken into account. Now that is pretty interesting. Reframing our understanding and the number we're using, we can better address what the outstanding influences were. That said, 15 million people, though it sounds much less and much more mild in comparison to these large numbers, is still a very big number. That is a lot of deaths from a flu virus. But is that really what happened? Let us first look at the medical knowledge of the time and see how the flu was identified, perhaps how these deaths came about being attributed to the flu. As we learned, a lot of this again will be uh, a recall to part three, which if you have not listened to in some time, uh, it may be good to listen, to go back and review at least the show notes, um, because a lot of this was introduced. Originally, it was assumed to be caused by a bacterial infection. It was widely believed to be caused by a bacteria that was often found in the lung tissue of the victims. And that uh, bacteria became known as Pfeiffer's bacillus. Now, uh, for those uh, that might be, more, might be interested in learning a bit more, uh, there was an in-depth study done in Alfred Crosby's book, The Forgotten Pandemic, heavily referenced in Part 3. Oh, and the proper name, by the way, is uh, Haemophilus influenzae. And what we now know is that no, it does not cause the flu. Interestingly, this bacteria was prevalent. It was tremendously prevalent. And the conclusion drawn that it was, in effect, did cause this flu and these flu-like symptoms uh, was, was widely accepted at first because the evidence seemed obvious. The conclusion drawn uh, made perfect sense. Uh, and what they still see now is that this is very prevalent. It actually seems to have some sort of relationship with perhaps flu because um, it's still found today. And while it has uh, nothing to do with the cause of the illness, um, it's just a common bacteria which seems to thrive under these flu conditions. Now, because of that, the vaccinations were bacterial and they were ineffective, obviously. Vaccinations developed on this uh, Pfeiffer's bacillus were not going to work or prevent the flu. 
it's also good to be reminded that there were no antibiotics at the time. There weren't any viral vaccinations, and there were no therapeutics. It was 1918. In fact, other than largely the use of traditional and alternative medicines, antibiotics were non-existent. The research for these were in their infancy in 1918, but penicillin was not introduced until the 1930s. Another important factor is understanding that the flu virus itself was not identified until 1933. As we look back with the uh, broad vision of history, we must remember at the time that when people talked about the flu, they were talking about a diagnosis of symptoms uh, and a collection of symptoms that is actually shared by quite a number of infections and conditions. It was in 1933 when the influenza type A virus was identified, type B following later in 1939, I believe. The Spanish flu itself, that, that H1N1 avian flu virus, was not found until 1957 when samples that were pulled from uh, bodies that had uh, preserved well in Alaska and died in the uh, in in the in 1918 or 1919 uh, were exhumed and samples collected. There was another group of samples that came from uh, I believe Camp uh, Oh Fort Riley in Kansas that were preserved at the time, and there were enough ex- samples uh, that allowed for this recreation, this remapping of the flu virus and this identification to understand that, yes, there was a virus that was spreading. But at the time, it was not being identified immediately. It was simply being diagnosed based on common symptoms and, in some case, uncommon symptoms. Now, apart from the medical knowledge of the time, another big factor when we discuss the supporting aspects in this during the Spanish flu is understanding the conditions of war. World War I, first and foremost, was a war of chemical warfare. Hands down, it was one of the most uh, notable wars uh, that leaned heavily on the use of chemical warfare. Now, I have several articles that I've identified, and I will include those in the show notes as well as everything else I've talked about. And I'm specifically not going into a tremendous amount of detail as I discuss these, in part because there's a lot of information, and um, and I'm trying not to overload you with more pandemic talk. But we do need to wrap this discussion, and, and to do that, we need to cover these areas. But to go back to the conditions of war, we must understand that chemical warfare played a huge role in the health of populations during World War I. Um, there were uh, just some examples. Tear gas used, chlorine gas, phosgene and diphosgene, and the infamous mustard gas. While the use of these um, did not produce a huge number of deaths directly in World War I, because of the... at t- I, the evolution of their use as they found that they need to use them very strategically and surgically um, 
And very quickly, there was uh, the gas mask technology that developed in order to prevent succumbing to these um, in terms of death. Uh, there were, as it you know came to be understood, long-term ramifications and impacts with these uh, with these chemicals. Now that could address. I know what you're thinking. All right. Well, that addresses those that were in combat, the soldiers, uh, the civilians in Europe that were near these communities where the battles were fighting. But that does not explain the deaths in the U.S. or in Canada or in other countries that were involved with the war, but their fight was abroad. Actually, um, I came across information that discussed the impact of these chemical of chemical manufacturing of these chemical weapons uh, throughout the U.S. And interestingly, there were a lot of problems. This is something that isn't brought up much in in uh, historical discussions because it seems like an indirect, I suppose, impact or aspect of uh, of wartime. But uh, but it actually is something rather common. Uh, the the level of production and the speed of production for these chemical weapons was going on everywhere. The Russians, the Germans, the British, uh, the U.S., everyone was building these chemical weapons in order to try to combat everyone else that had chemical weapons. Uh, plants were producing this in large degrees. Mustard gas, as dangerous it is, as it is, holds that same danger during manufacturing. And there were problems, especially in, in Germany, with the level of production that they had and the perhaps lighter um, safety levels that they were maintaining during manufacturing for worker safety. Even in areas such as the U.S., where there were a substantial there was a substantial understanding for the need for safety, the level of risk, because the United States entered the war later and uh, operated under lessons learned from their allies, uh, still ran risks. And in many cases, through improper handling or accidents of, of the plants, uh, there were deaths that were attributed specifically to these chemicals. Um, and, and not just deaths, but... Uh, medical uh, impacts, uh, illness, and uh, uh, long-term damage. One of the th- one of the many aspects of these uh, chemical exposures is what they found many many years later was the increased risk for upper respiratory infections uh, and the development of cancer. With this in mind, these chemical weapons actually played an important part in making much of the public, much of the population, uh, susceptible to otherwise mild um, infection of a flu virus. Not that it was a common flu virus uh, understood, but in the best of circumstances, a new flu strain can be difficult and problematic. But we are not talking about the best of situations. We are talking about a public that is exposed to chemical weapons and these chemicals during production um, and these chemicals getting into getting airborne not just on uh, the battlefield but also in the communities uh, 
within which they were manufactured. This can make the public susceptible and perhaps can help explain the attribution of a higher degree of the middle-aged uh, range of victims that, uh, that are attributed to the Spanish flu as a unique aspect of the disease. Another aspect during this time frame was drought, disease, and malnutrition. India, which suffered the most deaths attributed to the Spanish flu outbreak, experienced one of the worst droughts of the 20th century in 1918. There was famine and a lack of potable water, which led to malnutrition and a population that was prime for susceptibility to adverse flu reactions. This, of course, is the driver and why, even in the most restrained calculations for the, um, for the death toll attributed to the Spanish flu, India has the lion's share. In fact, India has about 50% of the total deaths of um, the Spanish flu between 1918 and 1919. It had a population that was suffering one of the worst uh, ecological and climatological uh, situations of the 20th century for its country, and in turn was having a tremendous health crisis for the population, even without the help of the Spanish flu. And finally, the aspect of that period was that was going on was social upheaval and exposure. The world had become a much smaller place for many. And when I say much smaller, I mean that in communities, and I can talk well from the perspective of the United States, there were communities, people were moving around in ways that they had not in, in some cases, generations. We had a tremendous amount of our population, uh, our young working class population, heading off to war. Because of that, the other, the other side, the other areas of the populace were going to work. They were heading into, people living in, in, in rural environments were heading into more urban settings. They were moving into work at the factories and manufacturing plants. Uh, they were taking over the businesses and the communities. People were stepping up and stepping outside of their comfort zones, outside of their communities, and outside of the sphere of exposure, as it were, for illness and disease. They were... Uh, opening up their immune systems to things which, uh, with which they were unfamiliar. It was because of this broad exposure and social up upheaval that many populations found themselves more susceptible to the Spanish flu. And finally, another aspect about this period that I don't think is properly addressed is this aspect of the often touted phrase that the Spanish flu killed more people than World War I uh, took in combat. That's meant to be this an extreme statement that, that draws images of, of massive death and, and unparalleled destruction from this disease. The truth is, though, disease and infection has been, throughout the history of the world up until World War One, uh, I'm sorry, up until World War Two, the leading cause of death during war for the United States, the American Revolution, 
all the way through to World War I. Death uh, was attributed more to disease and infection than direct combat. World War II changed that for everybody, every country, the entire world over. And that was a product of the advancement of medical knowledge and tools uh, and technologies and levels of hygiene. We were able to address injuries much better. We were able to prevent secondary infections from taking lives in ways that we, we as a global population, never had before. World War I, though, was not uh, that prepared. To say that World War I somehow, that the Spanish flu is severe because of the death count in comparison to combat deaths during World War I is a disingenuous statement that ignores uh, that, that fact throughout the course of history. Now, we've looked at really what the world was like then, right? And the medical knowledge at the time. Let's just flash forward now to really make sure we review what we know now and how a modern context of the Spanish flu, with the hindsight of an entire century, we can better understand what that severity was and perhaps understand the, that, that it wasn't necessarily the flu itself. So, that said, what do we know now? Well, it is just a flu. It's nothing really more lethal than today's flu. H1N1 still exists, albeit in a very mild form as it mutated, but it still surfaces. It's still around, and while it does cause problems when it flares up in epidemic levels, uh, the truth is, as they studied that, when teams went through and rebuilt the genome for the Spanish flu, and they did experiments, pre-clinical pre level animal testing trials of infection. They were unable to find um, symptoms tremendously more severe than is normally experienced by those that catch the flu today. But if the flu itself wasn't nearly as lethal, what else was there? Well, now we know something about the uh, the medicine being used, a very popular medicine that was being used at the time. Aspen treatments of the day were being done at dangerous levels. Well, I have a quote here out of, again, an article found uh, in the, uh, the journal Clinical uh, Infectious Diseases. And the title of the article that was published in November of 2009 is that Salicylates and Pandemic Influenza Mortality, 1918-1919, Pharmacology, Pathology, and Historic Evidence, by the author Karen M. Starko. I just want to pull out one uh, small quote from this, though it's an extensive article uh, and very interesting. It reads, A confluence of events created a perfect storm for widespread salicylate toxicity. The loss of bears that's Bayer Pharmaceutical, Bayer's patent on aspirin in February of 1917 allowed many manufacturers into the lucrative aspirin market. Official recommendations for aspirin therapy at toxic doses were preceded by ignorance of the unusual nonlinear kinetics 
of salicylate unknown until the 1960s, which predisposed to accumulation and toxicity. Tins and bottles that contained no warnings and few instructions. Well, that quote draws attention all of the aspects that are done. Now, when people talk about aspirin now, there is a dismissive aspect to this idea, and it's a false theory that is surfacing around, that somehow that the theory about aspirin involves using some sort of conspiracy, uh, using aspirin as a means of spreading the flu or intentionally poisoning the population. And the truth is, that was not the case. It was simply a matter of misunderstanding a drug and how it functioned in the body. At the time, as the author said, there was a perfect storm of events that occurred. With Bayer Pharmaceuticals patent having expired, aspirin, which at the time was the best uh, new medicine people were prescribing for pain and inflama uh, inflammation and fever, uh, could now be manufactured generically and put out on the market. And large bottles, powdered aspirin, uh, pills, or the caplets uh, in some form, but largely in powders, were sold. And these bottles were unclearly marked. The recommendations for this use were uh, many times greater than what you would recognize today as a an approved dose, dozens of times greater. This, in, in hindsight, is now attributing to a very high case uh, of fatality rate, especially amongst a very interesting group, young adults, during the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, which is actually, you know, has been identified as, as misunderstood or, or uh, incompletely understood, I should say. You have situations where people contracted the flu. Many people. It was widespread. And many developed secondary infection of pneumonia. What was happening to a very large degree, not just in the United States, but abroad because of the U.S. military uh, and other, other uh, countries that were turning towards the U.S. military for support and uh, uh, medical support and, and clinics and bases and facilities. All of these things were happening. Um, they were prescribing aspirin in order to control fever, to reduce symptoms, to reduce inflammation. The intent was there, but the dosing was toxic. This was having an opposite effect. Uh, there were pulmonary edemas found in autopsies of upwards of 46% of these uh, salicylate, these aspirin-intoxicated adults. So, <laughs> there was a lot of problems that was occurring and the use of the aspirin is much more widespread than was originally uh, understood and considered at the time. It became a, a, a drug, an over-the-counter medicine that the public had easy access to and understood that it was, was going to help. And that brings us to another point with what we now know, and that is that pneumonia is the real killer in all of this. From the Journal of Infectious Diseases, an article titled, What Really Happened During the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, The Importance of Bacterial Secondary Infections, by John F. Brundage and G. Dennis Shanks. This was published back in 2007, December. What is notable about this article is actually its reference to addressing preparation for future potential pandemic outbreak. 
Mind you, again, this was written in 2007, uh, which does follow some of the events of, of SARS and MERS, I believe, but uh, of course does not um, predict anything uh, like this, like the current COVID-19 outbreak. But uh, here's a quote in here. However, in their recent review, Morins and Fauci noted that the causes of death during the 1918 pandemic were similar to those during other pandemics, and that most fatalities had secondary pneumonias caused by common bacteria or, in a minority of cases, ARDS-like syndromes. Indeed, until recently, most descriptions of the 1918 pandemic, including nearly all contemporaneous reports, emphasized that fatal cases had variable and often prolonged clinical courses, that fulminant cases with rapid progression were relatively uncommon, and that secondary bacterial infections were the likely causes of most deaths. Now, this is the aspect that is largely underplayed even today when talking about the flu, in talking about any viral infection. But with the Spanish flu, it's too easy to fall prey to saying the Spanish flu caused everybody to die. The Spanish flu actually did not. Many of the many many of those that contracted it experienced mild system, symptoms. For those in which it got severe, it led to secondary infections. I know all of this sounds familiar to any of you listening now, and that's because of the parallels that we see today. But uh, with the Spanish flu, uh, as with flu discussions today, that often can get lost in context. When we look at the CDC reports for flu deaths annually. Let me look at the United States. I've got those numbers readily available. Of the 55,000 cases of reported deaths caused by flu in 19 or in 2017, uh, that number is actually attributed to a description not of just flu, but flu or flu-related uh, illnesses. And what's the majority of that? actually bacterial pneumonia. Of those 55,000 cases, 50,000 are attributed to bacterial pneumonia, which in many cases was a secondary infection to the flu, but not in all cases. Pneumonia can follow many upper respiratory uh, infections and diseases. The flu itself caused only 5,000 of the 55,000 attributed in 2017. Flu is not the killer itself. Where flu is dangerous is in making the body more susceptible to secondary infection. The flu, along with many other uh, infections, such as the common cold, can make you your body more susceptible to secondary, often bacterial, infections. I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the top myths that were identified with the 1918 flu pandemic. Of course, this is one of the early myth uh, lists that I found before diving into some more detailed research or trying to find academic papers that I could provide to you for reference. Uh, but this is actually found in the Smithsonian Magazine, and it actually is rather interesting. Uh, of course, they talk about things that we've addressed in previous episodes, that the the myth that the pandemic uh, originated in Spain, well, we know that to be untrue. And that the pandemic was the work of a super virus. 
And the truth is that it's not. It was the work of a flu and that the virus itself, as we had just discussed, uh, though a bit more lethal than other strains, really wasn't any more different fundamentally than that which caused any sort of other epidemics in other years. In a way, it uh, this allows us to wrap up our conclusions and our discussions over the last four, three and a half episodes, four episodes. And that is that, you know, much of the death rate was attributed to crowding in military camps and urban environments, poor nutrition and sanitation that were suffered during wartime, uh, as well as bacterial pneumonias in the lungs that were weakened by influenza. The other factors that we brought up, such as the impact of chemical warfare and chemical weapons manufacturing. Another myth was the first wave, uh, that the first wave of the pandemic was the most lethal. And in fact, it was not. As we addressed early on, it was the second wave that proved more lethal. Um, and perhaps as a product of timing or because of uh, the time of year um, or the movements that were going on at the time, as we discussed, it, that was the tail end of the war. That was the massive push. People were on the move all over the globe. Another myth that the Smithsonian Magazine uh, points out is that the virus killed most people who were infected with it. Well, in fact, most people who contracted it survived. Also good to always remember that, yes, while I'm saying here that most people survived, the death rates that people did experience even under the scaled-down number, right, concluding number of 15 million, is still higher than other than areas had experienced previously with the flu or things that they attributed to the flu. Another myth that they point out, which actually um, is applicable now, but in the inverse, is that the pandemic dominated the day's news, when in fact, in 1918, uh, it was least on people's minds. Yes, it was affecting communities. And yes, it was very important uh, within those areas that were being heavily hit. Many officials were underplaying it. And the newspapers were very focused on the war. <laughs> there was too much else going on to really talk about the flu all the time. And of course, in addition, which leads to how it got its name, is that there was fear that of disclosure of any, anything might embolden enemies during wartime, uh, which is why it was only in an open press uh, environment out of Spain that uh, the reports came out, thus giving it its name, the Spanish flu. There's also the rumor that the pandemic changed the course of World War I, and that is most likely untrue, as the magazine uh, correctly points, uh, points out, because everyone was affected by the... Uh, by the illness. I mean, if, if one side was getting sick, the other side was too. And they were getting sick from all sorts of stuff. Although there was a profound influence. It did have an effect following the war, perhaps with some of the diplomacy. As we learned, there was, uh, there was definitely uh, an impact to uh, U.S. President Wilson uh, during the, the, the treaty and negotiations of, of illness. Though his illness uh, does not reflect many flu-like symptoms, uh, you know, and it seemed more similar to what we know today as a norovirus, which does affect the gastrointestinal system. But hey, it was 1918. Who knows about viruses? You know, there's other ideas people that 
people have, of course, that there's a viewpoint that we have no idea what happened in the Spanish flu in 1918, that no one was able to figure it out. Well, as we covered extensively uh, throughout this, this series, um, you know, it, it, it is understood. Researchers, you know, up through back in, in the 1950s and even up through into the mid 2000s had been under had been researching the uh, H1N1 uh, virus uh, influence of virus and even with the team in 2005 had successfully determined the gene sequence been able to recreate the virus itself and later infect a, a group of of animals i believe it was it was monkeys that exhibited symptoms uh you know observed during the pandemic now I know I've covered a lot of stuff and it's 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 been hard to track all of these things. I wanted to get a lot of information to you, which is why this episode may seem a bit piecemealed, a bit staggered. Uh you know, it was difficult trying to pull this information together and make it a cohesive narrative uh as I would have preferred. And if you've been able to follow along and it sounded great, that's wonderful. Um I'm glad it did. For those of you that did notice it the whole time and are just happy that I've acknowledged that, um, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, the real key is that when we look at back on it, at, at the whole thing, is that we have to say that you know, the real killer during the Spanish flu outbreak and pandemic of 1918 were secondary bacterial infections. You know, the, the Spanish flu ultimately, uh, which is linked to this mutated strain of avian H1N1 influenza virus, was certainly more virulent than previously known. And it did prove more fatal, even in the most optimistic of models. But its severity was, wasn't autonomous or mutually exclusive of the world around it. It was fed by a world at war that was on the move and suffering a string of ailments and afflictions common with war up to that point. It was also able to move through populations weakened by chemical exposure, in unfamiliar environments, uh, population densities, and medical treatments in their infancy uh, that were often poorly understood. We're talking about that aspirin again. The Spanish flu may have killed millions, but as we said at the beginning, it did not do it alone. Now, this is where I would normally leave this topic, wrap up this episode, allowing you to reflect on the information presented and come to your own conclusions as to what truly motivates this fear of pandemic. Instead, we are presented with a new and unfortunate opportunity to apply our lessons learned and reassess our thinking on this current outbreak, something which I, I feel it is important to do. But first, the caveat. We are not dealing with a flu virus this time. COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a different animal, as it were, and the physiological response is still being explored and understood, right? Flu-like symptoms does not mean the flu. That said, the pandemic spread, as well as the public and political reactions, are very similar, and it's in those similarities in societal response that we will compare and perhaps draw a better understanding of the disparate public reactions to COVID-19. I want to first address the government response. Now, the, 
the government response is largely uh, driven by one key aspect, and that's that the models for severe pandemic are all predicated on the Spanish flu. That's that's the best model we have for what happens during a pandemic. So the government response must be viewed through the lens of expectation that the impact of a pandemic outbreak could result in a scaled level of mortality. At 5%, that would be 390 million people worldwide in 2020. You know, okay, half that if it's if it's only 2 to 3%. That's still nearly 200 million people. That's a lot of people. Medical professionals and government leaders that subscribe to this worst-case possibility obviously view this catastrophic impact as justification for drastic measures. Those that don't are currently being silenced on social media. So that perspective isn't even being heard. Now, as for the quarantine approaches themselves being done by various uh, state, local, federal, provincial, regional governments, it would be cumbersome to try to review the many variations and levels of severity that are being implemented. Suffice to say that none of it's new. Every approach being tried was also implemented in 1918 to varying degrees. And by varying degrees, I mean degrees of effectiveness, duration, and tolerance and patience uh, and acceptance by the public. So with that, let's lead into the public reactions. The government reaction is pretty straightforward, right? It's modeled, it's, it's built off a model. Public reaction is a bit more nuanced. The key factors I identified here were things like flu statistics, which we just talked about earlier, vaccine marketing and reliance, and of course, the personal economic impact. And when I say flu statistics, how does that affect the public reaction? Well, flu statistics, as I said, are always in the context of flu and flu-related illnesses, though that's not reported as such. All the blame is given to a single viral infection. And it said if you catch the flu, you could be part of that 50 to 60,000 people that die every year, just in the U.S. alone. Worldwide, it's hundreds of thousands attributed to the flu. Because of that, the public leans on what they're told, the vaccinations. If the public uh, was addressing or focused on the secondary infections, largely bacterial infections that are associated with the flu as well as other viral uh, infections, they would be addressing it through antibiotic issues uh, and, our, and our large problem of having uh, antibiotic resistance ongoing in the global population. Instead, with the public focused on how to address viruses, they lean on those vaccines. Vaccine reliance has been driven by the last 40 years of marketing that has told the public that your vac- a vaccination is the only true solution and protection against a major viral outbreak. That without vaccination, there are no other sorts of behaviors, social activities, or preventatives that can take care of the population. In fact, that the a public at large uh, should um, identify those unwilling or even questioning of the value of a vaccine can... Uh, themselves become a threat to public health. Now, wherever you fall on the vaccine position, whether you 
support all vaccine uh, regiments recommended by uh, your state government, local government in your country, or you find yourself in a tremendous uh, uh, disagreement uh, with those policies and, and uh, uh, you know, you might identify yourself with various levels, some various level of the uh, anti-vaccination movement. Um, all of those positions and what you're reacting to is a um, very well-developed and very profitable marketing uh, campaign that pushes vaccines that have been developed on good science in many cases, poor science in others. Uh, but it has convinced you that, uh, that I shouldn't say you, it has convinced a mainstream portion of the, pu- of the public that this is really the only safe option. And with the fact that a vaccine has not been developed magically within a month or two of this, uh, of this coronavirus surfacing, uh, there is a tremendous amount of risk recognition occurring within the public. Um, and now knowing with the admission uh, that, that a vaccine would be months and months, if not years away, if ever, uh, there is little recourse. And the idea of quarantine, the idea of distancing, the idea of containment is something that has not been discussed, has not been promoted and uh, you know the the population has is not familiar with it as a concept for anything else that uh, that we face in terms of disease and illness, uh, though it would be effective uh, to some degree with almost anything. Um, the other aspect here is personal economic impact, of course. I, you know that's I think that's an easy thing for those for those that um, don't feel a huge economic impact. Those that have been able to keep working, those that uh, have funds coming in, those that have not seen um, that their, you know, their, their cost of living impacted uh, by, by the, the whatever quarantining stay at home um, rules and regulations that are enacted in their area. Um, They have the ability to make a decision, you know, to evaluate the, uh, these government actions and decide how they view them. Now there's another side that is being tremendously negatively impacted, right? Loss of job, loss of work hours, loss of, uh, or reduction in pay, uh, perhaps increase in medical costs. Uh, and, and there's a tremendous impact and you don't in that case have the ability to view a situation objectively. Actions are being taken which are negatively impacting you and your family, and uh, you simply want them to be removed in order for you to resume, hopefully, your, uh, your activities, you know, your daily activities. The public reaction, therefore, is nuanced by region. It's, it's nuanced by, by municipality, by state, by government, uh, by national uh, government, it, it's uh, as well as even uh, medical leaders uh, within their their you know within their respective areas, and so it's it's a much tougher situation. There, it, there's actually a a risk tolerance aspect uh, for understanding the sociology. I'm not going to get into that here. It does it deserves its own little theoriology section, uh, but uh, 
I will probably address that over on Patreon um, for those that would be more interested. So that's the, really the public reaction. But government government reaction aside for COVID and then public reaction, um, both of those are driven by the history, this memory of the Spanish flu and its impact to everything that has gone on. But what about COVID itself? Are there is there anything that has um, stood out on its own that's causing its own problems and challenges? Well, we know that testing is a mess. Now, while in 1918 no testing existed for viral pathogens, you know we have a century later our ability to test for the viruses um, hasn't provided much more clarity than they had then. Uh, the world is grossly undertested and cannot yet give us a good picture of the pervasiveness of COVID-19. The accuracy during the Spanish flu was limited to clinical diagnosis, and that is still the driving factor in determining the need for testing even today. You get a test if a, if a physician, if a medical worker, if a hospital identifies that you exhibit symptoms and may have are likely to have COVID-19. And by the way, developing an accurate quick result test, it isn't easy. I'm not saying we should have one at this point or not, but the fact is we don't. Not yet. Another aspect is that closed cases imply severity, but not pervasiveness with COVID-19. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we do not yet have an accurate picture of outcomes. Still, some forecasting can be done. There are sources of error, which uh, which is a lack of true recovered count and, and the lack of testing that may mean drastically underrepresented levels of mild infection um, or no infection. But what we can look at now, and I will look at the global numbers uh, because that gives us a very broad picture, an, an average, uh, though, of course, each country is experiencing this at different levels of severity and, per, and, and pervasiveness throughout the populations. The global numbers now, and and for those that will recognize what I'm doing, uh, it's in my day job. It's my job to take a project, look at work completed, and, and project out where a project is, is going. That's that's what I do. That was why the when I was looking at these numbers, that's the first thing I wanted to do. Um, and I'm just sharing that with y'all. You know, it's it's an aspect that may be discussed some on various aspects of the media. I haven't seen every discussion on on COVID and the coronavirus, but largely this isn't being viewed in this manner. You know, we have at present, at the time I'm recording this, um, around three million cases worldwide confirmed coronavirus cases. We have two hundred twenty thousand deaths with a with uh, a recorded 1 million recovered. So what we're saying is that um, you know, th- this is where the news typically stops. They look at the deaths and they look at the total number and they say 10%, that's like 8% or 7% or something like that. And so there you go. That's what we can expect. And and it's high, but again, that's averaged over lots of countries. The U.S. right now has a third of those cases. Uh, so of the 3 million globe- worldwide, the U.S. has a million. But 
the actually the key aspect for forecasting the work is looking at what's already considered done. Uh, I said work, I'm sorry, is for forecasting the cases is, is looking at what's done to look at where we may be going. In that case, you want to look at the recovered versus the deaths. So of the closed cases, and you don't see me doing air quotes as I'm talking, but closed cases are those that have an outcome. And that means they are either recovered, considered recovered, case closed, or they ended in death. And so that total number is around 1.2 million. Of that 1.2 million, a million have recovered. It's 81%. And then the remaining deaths of 220-something thousand deaths is around 19%. Okay, so when I'm looking at this, if someone asks me what is the current mortality rate, rate of death for COVID-19, I would not say it's 6, 7, 8%. I would say currently it is at 19% of the population based on a 30% uh, completion against current total cases. Now that's pretty intense. 19%. And if I said, and so if things go um, play out with the remaining uh, 2 million outstanding active cases, then we will see a death toll of 19% against that 3 million or whatever it ends up being. I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretending I don't have to factor in a daily increase in the total cases. Um, well, that's, that's bad, right? That's, that's, um, over half a million people, 600,000, nearly 700,000 people, um, when all is said and done worldwide. And that, only increases as the cases increase. So if you want to understand the the, the, the level of concern, the where the models are coming from, uh, why governments are, are concerned, um, and, and some people are apprehensive and worried, that's where it comes from. Because there are those that are forecasting this the way I'm looking at it and saying, hey, you don't just look at everything uh, independently. You have to look at what's done and what's completed. Now, where are those errors? I pointed out sources of errors, right? So the recovered count could be much, much too low. As uh, uh, medical facilities are working on these and doctors are working on these, many of these cases are mild. 97% of the active cases are just in a mild condition. That means that they are not being hospitalized. They are simply being, they're, usually they're at home and they're being observed uh, that way. Uh, with only about 3% that are critical. So if we jump over to recover, there may be many in that number that have simply not been checked off yet as a closed case that has reached through their 14 or 21 days uh, post-symptom and post-fever, and they're considered cleared. Um, if that number increases greatly, it will drastically um, increase its percentage of closed cases you know, against the closed cases and, and drastically reduce the, the percentage of deaths against cases that are considered closed and, and done. Um, and that's, that's what we can all hope for. Um, additionally, testing, as we know, has been in many places uh, very selective. Testing has been only for those that already exhibit symptoms uh, and uh, where, where the conclusion can and, and perhaps a clinical diagnosis where the conclusion can be drawn that they have most likely contracted COVID-19. 
um, in that case that that does skew. You 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 are recognizing a caseload uh, that's that's already skewed towards the most severe cases. You, if they're exhibiting symptoms, if they're at a hospital, if that's why they're looking at it, they haven't attributed their mild symptoms to something else. They haven't attributed it to a common cold or allergies or uh, being stuck inside all day or uh, food poisoning or any number of things that people tell themselves when they get sick what is going on because they self-diagnose. We all do it. That, so, so that number could be drastically lower. You know, we could actually, it could be true that, that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands more have contracted COVID-19. And that with that case, the mild condition um, cases are um, in number much, much greater. And those people that have contracted, especially if the suspicions are true that, that people have been capturing or uh, catching this disease since uh, much earlier than uh, across parts of the globe than, than everybody thinks, then yes, we have many that recovered. Uh, although you may have deaths that were not originally attributed as well. So there's a lot of factors here that make it very difficult to predict and that uncertainty really does play a, pe- uh, a an important part of decision-making with world leaders and uh state and local officials and leaders and with the public itself and how they react. So I don't want to dive into that a bit uh, much more other than to say that this has all happened before. We are sitting on a powder keg right now of, uh, of an event that um, is really in a, you know, a precarious waypoint um, and it really is going to see how the public reacts and how it turns uh, because of the uncertainty. And regardless of how it plays out now, when the second wave arrives in the fall uh, with a severity that remains to be determined, that will ignite uh, new tensions and new problems. The other levels, other aspects of uncertainty amount to the origins of this, where it came from, how it how it developed or how it was developed and um, where it originated, how early it surfaced um, and when it affected the public. All of these aspects play an important role. And these are legitimate questions uh, that uh, should not be dismissed as conspiracy until they're given at least some time in the sun uh, and in, you know, in the limelight to be evaluated. But uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, to bring it all back, this is an opportunity for us to uh, experience history firsthand and understand what the world went through a hundred years ago. And and perhaps um, this will help us to later, after we get past it, which we will, once we get moved past the COVID-19 outbreak, help us to understand what happened with the Spanish flu, why it became known, one, why it, it, it became forgotten and got and became known as that forgotten pandemic. Why did the, the world just put it to its side? Was it really because of current events at the time that overshadowed uh, the, um, the, the, the flu pandemic as a problem? Um, there certainly, there certainly was a reason to not pay attention 
to it when the world was experiencing its first great war? Or was it something else? Was there a sociological aspect that that just the public had to compartmentalize and put it aside and not think about it so much in order for uh, public activity to life to resume? Uh, these are these are good questions. I'm I'm very curious to hear what you think and what your perspective is on it. You know, now that we've discussed all of these many aspects and influences of the Spanish flu, as long now that we've reevaluated, revisited this number and this death toll, uh, and and looked at the Spanish flu both just from a historical perspective, uh, narratively. Um, and and now looked at just specifically the the numbers and the factors and all of the the attributing parts and pieces that make a pandemic as messy and scary and dirty and dangerous and lethal as it you know as it is and as it sounds and also now we've pulled back the curtain with a bit on covid and and looked at these numbers and looked at the forecasting and maybe hopefully i've given you a little perspective with where you stand on it as to at least why some of the more extreme and concerning perspectives are out there, uh, as well as the unknowns that drive that and could, as more information becomes available, hopefully put things in a better perspective. Uh, so there's a lot there. We've covered a lot. And thankfully, we're done with this series. I could keep talking COVID and pandemics and all of that stuff ad nauseum many episodes to come. I, I know it's on a lot of our minds. For me, it's on my mind all the time. My work is associated with, uh, the day job is associated with pandemic response and it, and it, it, um, uh, so unfortunately I've simply had to pay attention to this more, uh, than, than I would have liked, uh, but it has been fascinating in this journey through, uh, the history of the Spanish flu and the many aspects, uh, that are less known about it at the time. Uh, have have really shed a new light and helped me approach this this current this current COVID pandemic from a different perspective. With that, I think that will complete this episode as well as our series on pandemic panic and the Spanish flu. I really appreciate your patience as we explore all this. I know there were gaps in in each of the uh, between the episodes, and it was in part because of the impact going on, and also a, a, deci a decision on my part in order to space this out and make sure there was enough information with each of these episodes of discussion that um, that I could present to you something that, uh, you know, was not ill-informed. Uh, so uh, it was rather interesting. The Spanish flu has, has been on the show list for a long time because historically it's a fascinating uh, topic. And um, I never thought that there'd be uh, an event, a current event, that would parallel and cause need for this discussion to occur in such a different format and a different approach. So because of that, I thank you so much for joining me today. Now, if you are enjoying these episodes, please share them with others. That's what I'm asking you to do. Get out there with your uh, player of choice and just hit that share button and put it out in social media. Uh, we've had a lot of new listeners, um, many of whom have started to visit the, uh, or following on Twitter or visiting the Facebook page, and that is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to start putting more information 
out on on uh, Facebook and and to connect more with with so many listeners and a following. Um, so so jump over there and, and and give it a shot as well. Do not forget that uh, there's additional content over on Patreon. Now please click that follow or subscribe button if you are new to the show so that you don't miss the future discussions. And remember, if you want to talk about any of this and bring up any aspects, point out where you thought I was wrong or should have covered more information, um, contact me at uh, via email, contact at conspiracytheoryology.com or go find me on the socials at theoryologypod. Now, all of this info can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including, as I said, how to support the show on Patreon. As always, music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy, behind the belief, lies the theoryology. Thank you.